What does the Bible say about where do you draw the line between having fun and fellowship and being a distraction, disrespecting God's time? Another question would be, is it appropriate to make jokes like during Bible study and prayer? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question this week, and Pastor Clay's answer is coming up right after Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Fashion is a, is a big deal in the world in which we live. I mean, and it has been pretty much since the beginning of time. Everybody wants to look good and all that, be fashionable. And along the way, in the process of people trying to be fashionable and come out with new fashions, there have kind of been some bad fashions that have come along. Fashion, it's a billion-dollar industry worldwide. Designers are always trying to come up with the latest and greatest fashion trend. But usually, fashion trends come and go faster than you can say tie-dye. There comes a time when the old-fashioned has to be taken off and the new put on. What was he thinking <laughs> you know, when he put that on? And sometimes we need some, some fashion advice. Sometimes you just need somebody to say, put the tie-dye down, sir, and step away from the shirt. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. As we continue our series entitled Colossians, It's All About Him, we've moved into the second half of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, where we find much more of a practical tone to his letter. Today, Pastor Clay is going to show us how the Apostle Paul uses a clothing analogy to teach us the importance of a changed life. That's a really good piece of fashion advice that Paul gives us. We have to come to this place where we recognize, hey, this doesn't fit me anymore. Just like fashions that go out of style, those who come to Jesus must take off their old way of living and put on the new. I'll be back after the message to wrap things up. Now here's Pastor Clay with today's Crosswalk message. I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about uh, fashion. You know, fashion is a, is a big deal in the world in which we live, right? Yeah, I mean, and it has been uh, pretty much since the beginning of time. Everybody wants to look good and all that kind of stuff, be, be fashionable. Um, and, and along the way, in the process of people trying to be fashionable and come out with new fashions, there have kind of been some bad fashions that have come along at, at different times. If you happen to wear sandals with socks, hey, more power to you. Um, I think it's just normally considered a, a fashion faux pas, um, but fashions, right? Yeah, fashions, they, they come and they go, and, and sometimes you wonder why they didn't go a lot sooner. Uh, sometimes you think, you know, what was he thinking, <laughs> you know, when, uh, when he put that on? And sometimes we need some, some fashion advice. Sometimes you just need somebody to say, put the tie-dye down, sir, and step away from the shirt, you know, kind of kind of deal. Uh, if you've been with us uh, in this series in the book of Colossians, and particularly if you were with us last week, you may remember that I said the first half of the book of Colossians um, has much more of a theological, the first two chapters have much more of a theological emphasis to them, and the last two chapters, chapter 3 and 4, have much more of a practical emphasis to it. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense uh, that it would be that way, because if what I believe, if what you believe doesn't affect how you live, then what you believe doesn't really even count, does it? I'll be, I'll be even stronger about it. If what you say you believe about God does not affect your life, 
then what you believe about God quite possibly is not even real. It may be what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said the idea of having a form of godliness but denying its power. In this study in the book of Colossians, we have gone over several ideas, several emphasis that I kind of, as I outlined the book, looked at. And we spent some time looking at Christ presented in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 14 and what all that was in those opening verses of this letter to the church in Colossae. We spent a couple of weeks discussing the idea of Christ preeminent. And it's an idea that comes up over and over again in the book. But there in chapter 1, particularly in verses 15 through 29, there's just this strong emphasis on Christ preeminent, Christ exalted, Christ above everything and everyone else. We spent some time discussing Christ protected in chapter 2. Really all of chapter 2. The idea of being protecting my, my theology, protecting my understanding of who Jesus Christ is and, and it, you know, all, all that kind of thing. It's, it's protecting my, my Christology, my stereology, all those, all those big words that we used and walked through and explained. And then, starting uh, last week, we began to move in the, into the second half of Paul's letter and we started into the section that I've entitled Christ Practiced in chapter 3. Christ practiced. And in verses uh, 1 through 7, just to kind of uh, reemphasize that, that for you real quickly, because I, I think it's important to tie these two ideas together, uh, in, in verses 1 through uh, 7, we began to, to look at these different parts of, of, our, of this life in, in Christ and, and how it begins to need to take on a new flavor in our life and how it begins, needs to begin to look different in our life. And Paul begins to uh, discuss these things that, that shouldn't be a part of our life. And, he, and, he, and we brought up this idea that you need to make up your mind. In other words, um, as, it, as it said there in verse 1, If then you be raised with Christ, keep seeking the things of God. And Paul talked about, you really get this emphasis in verse 1 through 7, about the importance of the mind. If then you've been, in other words, if you've come to Christ, if you've made this decision, then then this is what you need to do. This is how your life needs to look. This is the direction that it needs to go. You need to make up your mind. In other words, you can't, you can't play with this thing. You can't be halfway bought in. You have to buy in completely to the idea of Jesus. You can't, you can't separate the Jesus who, who gets you out of hell and into heaven from the Jesus that calls you to, to die to yourself and follow him because they are, in fact, one and the same Jesus. And this, this false notion, this false doctrine that, that you can, that you, can you know, accept Jesus like he's some sort of get out of hell free card and then decide for yourself what part of your life you're going to surrender to him or not surrender to him. I'm telling you, that concept is foreign to the Bible. It, it really is. If then you have been. You've got you to make up your mind, which, which then led to the second idea was that you've got to set your mind. In other words, you have to begin to, to say, this is what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on the eternal. I'm going to focus on the, the, the heavenly. I'm going to focus on the spiritual and not on the material, not on the, the flesh. This, I'm not going to focus on this stuff. And, and we spent some good time last week, at least it was for me, talking about how hard that is for us to do because we live 
in this, right? We live in this flesh. We live in this world. We live in, in all of this. And so it's hard for us to think vertically, as I, as I said last week. It's hard for us to think that way because we're always down in here. But it is, in fact, possible through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to live in the material but to not focus on the material. And in order to do that, at least part of that is the the last idea of the mind that we talked about last week. You have to change your mind. We have to change our mind. We have to uh, move away from the things that that we we did before, the way we thought before. We have to begin to look at it in a different way. As as Paul says to the church in Rome in chapter uh, 12 of Romans, he says, And do not be conformed to this world. It's the same thing he's talking about here in, in Colossians. And do not be conformed to this world but be, would you say that word with me, please? Transformed. Don't be conformed, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, by the changing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the whole idea of of making up your mind and setting your mind and changing our mind have a new way of thinking. And now, as we move farther in, as we're going to today, as we move farther into chapter 3, Paul's going to get even more specific about how this applies to our life. How we move it from the theological to the practical. We're in Colossians chapter 3 and we're reading verses 8 just through verses 14 this morning. The text is on the screen and if you have a Bible, um, you're probably already turned there. But now you also put them all aside... Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and then put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Paul's going to give us, here in chapter 3, some fashion advice. Hey, we could all use some. Because having set the stage in verses 1 through 7, and uh, as I uh, have said throughout this study, that uh, chapters 1 and 2... Paul is building this strong theological case. And the case he's making eventually, and I'll talk more about it in a minute, is that you have come to Christ. If you have come to Christ, if you've made up your mind about this thing, you have been clothed in his righteousness. God sees you as righteous. If you're in relationship with Christ, God sees you as righteous because you have been clothed in his righteousness. That's, here's where the prophet Isaiah Puts it in Isaiah chapter 61. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Watch this. 
For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Notice, by the way, who it is that's done this thing. Who? God's done this thing. Not you. And arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah says, look at this thing. Look at the righteousness of Christ that I'm, that I'm wrapped in. That's what Paul's building this, this case for. And so in chapter 3 and 4, he begins to say, now, here's how this makes a difference in your life. So this is how I would, I would say the, the BP squared looks today. The big picture biblical principle uh, looks like this. If you put on Christ positionally or, or spiritually, you must put on Christ practically. If then you've been raised with Christ... If you've been, as Isaiah says, clothed in his garment of righteousness. If you, by faith, have given your life to Jesus Christ, recognize your need for him and his substitutionary atonement for your sins, then God has placed the righteousness of his son upon you. And if you have been clothed in him positionally, then you, need, you must be clothed with him practically. Um, Here's what Paul says again to the church in Rome in chapter 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Now remember, Paul's writing to believers. They're already in Christ. But he says to them, as he says to the church in Colossae, you've got to put on Christ. You've got to begin to live this thing out practically. This is a common theme in Paul, this idea of putting on and taking off. Which are, are the two ideas, the two themes that I think we're kind of looking at this fashion advice in chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. The first piece of fashion advice that Paul gives us is this. Take off what no longer fits you. Take off what no longer fits you. In, in verse 5, which we'll look at in a, in a moment, uh, more detail, uh, he begins to enumerate all of these things that we need to consider as dead, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then in verse 7, he then says... And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul says, now that, that used to be you. Paul says, that used to be the way you lived your life. Paul says, you used to focus on the flesh. You used to focus on yourself. You used to focus on all this stuff that really amounts to idolatry because it's, it's all about me. It's all about focusing on meeting my needs, my wants, my desires, my whatever. That's where the focus is. And Paul says, you've got you to change your your focus, that's where you used to be. Because that's not you anymore. You need to get that stuff off of you because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit a child of God. It doesn't, it doesn't belong with a child of God. Have you ever, you ever been uh, working maybe at a job or out in the yard or, or whatever the case may be and you've just gotten so filthy, stinking, grimy, gritty, dirty, Clothing, you know what I'm saying? You ever been that way? You ever gotten that way? Any of y'all ever worked? I'm <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. And do you remember thinking, oh, God, if I could just get these clothes off of me. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was in uh, Sri Lanka uh, doing some tsunami relief work. My, my brother Nate uh, Jones uh, was with me and Rick Freeman, who's part of Cross Culture. Uh, by the way, if you be praying for Rick. If, you're not, if you've seen some of the prayer requests going around, he had some tumors removed off of his bladder uh, this week and it'll be probably a week or two before the results are back and 
so he's living with that and some uncertainty, and uh, I know he appreciates your, your prayers continue to do so. But we were in Sri Lanka doing some tsunami relief work, and quite honestly, um, of all the places I've been in the world, all the things I've done, it, it was the most labor-intensive mission trip I've ever been on. I mean, it was just, they just needed people to work, to help try and rebuild these people's lives. And, and we worked. We worked our rear ends off. I mean, it was, it was really, we, we were clearing fields, you know, chopping brush, and uh, we were making cement blocks. We were uh, building stuff. We were, uh, I mean, it was just digging foundations. And, it, and of course, it's Sri Lanka, you know, so it's really hot and humid. And when the day finally ended and we loaded up to head back to the church where we were staying, Man, I, everybody, at least, at least, I know, at least I felt this way. I couldn't wait for my time in the shower when I got back because you're just so dirty and grimy and gritty and, and stinky and, and you, just, you just can't wait to get in the shower. And there was no hot water and, uh, and your body was so hot that it, it truly was freezing. Uh, when you, but you didn't care because you just wanted to get that stuff off of you. That's, that's Paul's picture here. Man, get that stuff off of you. He says in verse 8, But now you also put them all aside. Put them all aside is an, an imperative, uh, aorist, middle verb. Uh, the, the imperative part basically means that it's, it's a command. He's, he's saying, do this. The aorist tense uh, to the verb carries the idea that it is, that it is singular or, uh, or punctiliar in time. In other words, it's, it's, not this, it's not this drawn out thing. It's not this idea of, well, you know, kind of, you know, getting rid of some of this stuff or kind of, I kind of need to take this. It's not taking it off and, and putting it back on. It's not taking it off and, and putting it back on. Paul says, do this. Get this off of you. Take it away. Remove it because it doesn't fit you anymore. That's, that's who you used to be. That's what you used to do. But you don't do that anymore. That's not who you are. And it doesn't look good on a child of God. So get rid of it. And here's what some of the things he begins to uh, enumerate. Anger. Uh, really, and it carries this idea. It's a settled attitude of anger. Okay, everybody gets angry from time to time. Right? But what, what, what he's talking about here is just this state of anger, just living in this attitude of anger all the time, just, just mad at the world. Y'all ever met anybody like that? I remember Mark and Megan uh, Goodwin, they're not here today, when they were just, they were teenagers and they started attending Cross Culture a couple years ago. They were still in high school and they were working as greeters uh, out in the parking lot area. By the way, we can always use more greeters if you can, can put a smile and say good morning. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about the greeter ministry, but... Um, Y'all like how I got that plug in there? Seamlessly. Seamlessly. Um, anyway, they're out there, uh, bless their hearts, and, and some guy comes flying up in his car. They told him about all this later. Comes flying up in, their car, in his car, and I don't think he got out of the car. I, I can't remember about this for sure what they told him, but I don't think he got out of the car. But he just started, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? And they said, well, we're, we're cross-culture church. What do you mean you're from cross you What does the church doing mean? Are you, this is illegal. This is a violation of separation of church and state. And I'm going to do it. And he's just screaming. They said he's just screaming. And he drives off, you know, floors that spins the wheels. He's honking the horn. Bang, 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 all the way out. Really? Just angry. Just angry at the world. Uh, wrath. It's a violent outburst of wrath. It's just uh, Explosion. 
of wrath and, and anger. Take it off. Take it off. Malice. It, it really just, it's a tendency to harm other people. It might be physical. It might be emotional. It might be verbal. But it's the person that doesn't care who they hurt. It's the person that doesn't care who gets hurt. Just, just malice. Just hurtful. Slander. Well, hurting people with words. Gossip. Just, just, ah, just injuring people like that. Abusive or, or foul speech, which also could be speech that hurts people, but of course it, it could be cursing or just unconstructive language in general. Get it off of you. It, it doesn't fit a child of God. It doesn't belong. By the way, Paul's list here in, in verse 8 and, and 9, of course he adds lying. That's in there too. Don't want to miss that one. Paul's list is not meant to be ex, ex, you know, exhaustive. He doesn't list everything. We could go back to verse 5 and those elements again in verse 5 that he, that he talked about. Uh, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. We, we could list all of those in, in there as well. By the way, immorality, uh, the Greek word is uh, pornean. Probably hear our word pornography in that. It, it's just referring to sexual sin. Not that sex is sin. Can I hear an amen, married people? Not that sex is is sin. It's not. It's this wonderful, beautiful gift that God has given to be used within the confines that he has given it, which is a man and a woman in covenant marriage. And outside of those confines, you can call it whatever you want. God calls it sin. And you you need to take it off. It doesn't belong. And all those other things that he lists there, the, the, the greed, all the stuff, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire, the greed, all that stuff, he says, it's just, it's just idolatry. Like I said, it's just, just really focusing on you. It's making you your own God because you're the only one you're interested in pleasing or, or whatever. Take it off. It just doesn't belong. That's, that's a really good piece of fashion advice that Paul gives us. We have to come to this place where we recognize, hey, this doesn't fit me anymore. That, that, that used to be my life. That, that used to be how I lived. That was, that was what I thought. It was all about me. And, and if I hurt somebody or if I said or if I did or if I whatever, it didn't matter. Paul says, if you put on Christ positionally, if you've been robed in his righteousness, then you've got to put him on practically. You've got to take off what doesn't fit you any longer. And he gives us a second piece of fashion advice. You have to put on what was purchased for you. Take off what doesn't fit you. Put on what was purchased for you. Now, I, I, again, I know I've said this a bunch of times. I'm a broken record. Uh, but I've said a number of times that uh, Paul, in chapters 1 and 2, is establishing this theological case for Jesus Christ. His authority and his sufficiency. He is God and his sacrifice is sufficient. And I've uh, said on a number of occasions that that... Paul is dealing with false teachers in Colossae that are polluting and corrupting the the theology and so now the practices of the church. And that's why he deals with them in the order that he does. And he begins to talk about the things that need to be put on in our lives and the things that we need to, uh, having removed those things that didn't belong in our life, there's some things that we need to put on. That's what Paul begins to address and deal with. And it all has to do with this false teaching. If you were here, you, you may or may not remember this, it's okay. But a few weeks ago, I made this statement that false teaching generally tends to lead to one of two extremes. Extreme asceticism, or I would be comfortable place, using the term extreme legalism. 
stream asceticism, which he seems to deal with in chapter 2. It's, it's the idea that, uh, that there are certain things that, uh, uh, you know, you, you have to put into your life, certain things you have to do, certain things you, you shouldn't do, and, and uh, that all of these things, do's and don'ts and, and, and sacrifice you have to make and uh, things you need to stay away from, all these things, and here's the key, they're designed to help win God's favor. And that's never been the case. That's, that's never been the point. No, listen, don't get me wrong. God has expectations on your life. God has standards. God has do's and don'ts. But they're always designed for our good. The do's and don'ts that God gives us are for our good. They're not, they're not to win God's favor in some way. It's never been what it's about. His sacrifice is all that's sufficient for a relationship with him. So Paul deals with them some in, in chapter 2, and this idea of extreme legalism. By the way, it still exists today, right? I mean, you still see that. And again, I'm not saying God doesn't have standards. I'm just saying that if the expectation is that somehow by doing or not doing, or you know, that I'm going to impress God, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The other um, group of false teachers, uh, the other area that Paul was dealing with, is extreme hedonism. And I think that's what he's dealing with in chapter 3. Extreme hedonism. It's the idea that you can just, you just indulge. Now, here's the, here's the thinking behind it by those that were teaching it. This, this flesh, it's corrupt. It's just, it's just it's passing away. It's, it's of no significance or eternal value. The world, this is, this is a corrupt world. This is a carnal world. It's, it's all passing away. The flesh, the world, the, the material, all this is going away. So, we might as well indulge ourselves in it since it's not going to last anyway we might as well just just go all in do everything we want to do uh, physically for pleasure or or whatever we want to do just might as well do it materially physically fleshly because it doesn't matter because it's all passing away anyway and some were even arguing that as a matter of fact if we'll do that we'll actually bring greater glory to god yeah because because if i sin big well that gives an opportunity for god's grace to be displayed big by him forgiving us. So I, I ought to just go ahead and do this more. And God will, God will get even more glory from this. <laughs> and somehow it, it made sense to the people. And, and Paul says, no, no, no. That's, that's not what Christ died for. That's, that's not what this is about. He didn't die to give you a license to sin. He died to give you liberty from sin. This isn't so you can indulge your fleshly appetites. And he deals with this over and over again in, in the letter to Romans and in, in, in Galatians here in Colossae. This idea keeps coming up over and over and over again. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 6. We know that our own sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're, we're no longer slaves to sin. In uh, verse 14, sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And then in verse 15, he follows it up. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. No, this isn't about indulging in sin. Sin is ungodly. Sin is unholy. Sin is unhealthy. Sin is unrighteous. Sin is destructive. And we've taken that off. We've got to take that off. And having taken it off, we have to clothe ourselves with what he's purchased for us. Here's how Paul says it in verses 10 
and following. Notice the clothing theme. And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart. There it is again. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Taking off that other stuff, and here's what you're putting on. Let me kind of uh, run through these real quick, real quick, this idea of these things he's saying to, to put on. Um, it, 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 first, he begins with equality. It's basically what he's saying. When he says, Greek, nor Jew, nor Scythian, nor slave, nor free, but Christ is all in and all. He's talking about equality. One of those false teaching groups that I've mentioned before, the Judaizers. The Judaizers believed, quite honestly, that they were cut above everybody else. They were saying, yeah, uh, Jesus died uh, for sins of the world. He, he died so that you could be saved, but you've got to be a Jew in order to get in on this. After all, Jesus was a Jew, and, and we've got the law, and so you've got to, you can come to Jesus, but you have to come through the, through the Jewish door. You have to become a Jew, and obviously you couldn't come, become a Jew by birth if you're already alive. But by circumcision, by keeping of the ceremonial laws, the Sabbaths, all of these things and regulations, rules, right? if you keep all of those things, then you can become a Jew. And if you become a Jew, they were, they were above everybody else. The Gnostics, that's the other group of false teachers that we've discussed, they also believed that they were above everybody else. The Gnostics believed that they had um, a superior intellect to the average person. They believed that they had a secret knowledge. Remember us talking about that? A secret knowledge that nobody else had and that they had the right to bestow that knowledge about, uh, upon whomever they decided to place it upon. And Paul's response to them is pretty much the same to both of them. Uh, no. The whole world is in the same boat. Every one of us are separated from God because of our sin. Paul says there's only one there's only one race, the human race, and there's only two classes of people, those who have heard the message of God and responded to the drawing of God and experienced the grace of God, and those who have not. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, no Greek or Jew, there's no Scythian or slave or free, there's none of this stuff. Christ is all and in all, and there may not be equality in the world, but there sure better be equality in the church. It's equality. None of us are any better than any of the others. And then he mentions all those other things there, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. We could spend a lot of time looking at each one of those, and there is more to this garment that we'll look at in a few weeks. But can I just say this? Man, that's a good-looking outfit. Hey, can you imagine? Now think about this with me for a minute. And I'm not saying you don't do this, or I'm not saying you don't try to do this, but can you imagine what it would look like if we wore our Jesus suit every day to work? Can you imagine perhaps what kind of influence that might have on our, on our co-workers, people around us? If we wore compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love. And again, I'm not saying that, you, that you're not trying to do that. But can you imagine if we put that on every day? This is me. I've been, ro- I've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. And now I'm going to live as if I've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to put on what he has purchased for me. 
He has delivered me, as I, as I said last week, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And I don't have to do that stuff anymore. I can live like Christ. Can you imagine what people might think of that? Do you think people might be a little more interested in our Jesus if we looked a little more like our Jesus? Put it on. Put on what was purchased for you. Because before Christ, move over here. Before Christ, hey, come on. Maybe some people are worse than others. You can look at, you can always look at somebody else and say, well, I, you know, yeah, the, the, that other guy there. But listen, all of us, before Christ, that was our life. All those things that Paul describes up there, we did what we wanted, when we wanted, we focused on us because it was about us. Take it off. Take it, get that off of you. Put on Christ. Put on this idea of living like Christ lived with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love. Because, as I said, Christ has delivered us not only from the penalty of sin, ladies and gentlemen, but from the power of sin. He set us free. And as Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, so if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Clearly, the Apostle Paul had a fashion sense about what followers of Jesus should be wearing. There is a clear break between the way we used to act before Christ and the way our lives should look today as His children. In today's message, Pastor Clay asks the question, Do you think the world around us would be more interested in our Jesus if we looked more like our Jesus? That's a sobering question and one for all of us to ponder. Is my life characterized by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and the other characteristics of Christ? Have I put on love as Paul admonishes us to do? Certainly, the fashion lesson for us all is to take off what doesn't belong, what doesn't fit anymore as followers of Christ, and put on what He has purchased for us. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Q&A time here at uh, Cross Culture Church. We're answering a question that someone has submitted um, into the box and interesting question today. I'm going to begin the question with a video that some of you may have seen in the last week or so. Watch this. And finally, we take you to Nashville, Tennessee, 
and the NASCAR Nationwide Series race where Pastor Joe Nelms delivers one of the most unusual pre-race prayers you will ever hear. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for all your blessings. You said in all things give thanks. So we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before us. Thank you for the Dodges and the Toyotas. Thank you for the Fords. And most of all, we thank you for Roush and Yates partnering to give us the power that we see before us tonight. Thank you for GM Performance Technology and the R07 engines. Thank you for Sunoco Racing Fuel and Goodyear Tires that bring performance and power to the track. Lord, I want to thank you for my smoking hot wife tonight, Lisa. My two children, Eli and Emma, or as we like to call them, the little E's. Lord, I pray you bless the drivers and use them tonight. May they put on a performance worthy of this great track. In Jesus' name, boogity, 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 amen. Wow. Wow. How many of y'all have seen that or heard that prayer? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great intro for the question uh, today. And uh, if time permitting and if my memory allows, I'll come back and, and address specifically the prayer. But the question looks like this. When it comes to Bible study, is it appropriate to make jokes? Where do you draw the line between having fun, fellowship, and being a distraction disrespecting God's time? Thanks. Uh, an appropriate question, uh, especially given the prayer this past week that uh, made a lot of national headlines and uh, a lot of people responding to it. Some people saying that there's a special place in hell for that guy and some people saying that, uh, you know, he's, he's being real and authentic and all that sort of thing. But what is the place of of joking and, and that sort of thing. Is there, is there a place for that in, in Christianity? Well, first, uh, let me uh, begin by uh, saying this. Uh, God is not anti-laughter, okay? He, God is not the, the great cosmic killjoy. Uh, God is not the one that wants to rain on your parade. God, God's not the giant potty pooper. God's not any of those things. There's so, there's so many scriptures we could look at, but uh, just to begin in Psalm 32, we, we find these uh, words. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Sounds like somebody that's just enjoying life and happy, doesn't it? Probably includes some laughter. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 126, uh, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. In uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 15, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. When the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. And then you may be familiar with uh, Proverbs 17. It says this, a joyful heart is good medicine. I think some translations even, in, even say laughter. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. God's not anti-laughter. And of course, Solomon, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. Clearly the Baptists didn't get that last part, did they? So, um, just making fun of myself. Um, God is not anti, anti-laughter, okay? But let me say this. God is anti-inappropriate <laughs> laughter. God is anti-inappropriate laughter. Maybe you've read this passage of Scripture before in the book of Ephesians. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as 
is proper among saints, believers. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolatry has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Pretty sobering words that Paul writes there. And some people have used that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 to say, see, there should never be any laughter. You can't have a good time if you're a Christian. Uh, Heaven forbid, literally, that we should laugh in church or in a small group study in in a Bible study or something like that. But listen, I just don't believe that's the case. The context there of Ephesians 5, uh, as we, that's why I read a, a fairly significant portion there, clearly shows that what he's talking about is laughter and joking that is inappropriate, that is immoral or filthy or dirty language. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dirty jokes, dirty, inappropriate stuff. There, there's no place for that. In other words, uh, the farmer's daughter needs to stay on the farm and the traveling salesman needs to stay on the road. You understand what I'm saying to you? There's no place for that in the family of God. So maybe these are some questions that, that could help us in Bible study or, or whatever it might be that we might could ask ourselves. Number one, is it appropriate? If, if, I'm, if I'm telling a joke or something comes to my mind, I want to say, okay, is it appropriate? Does it, does it pass the biblical test of being clean, being healthy, being godly? Is, is, it, is it appropriate? Second, is it profitable? Laughter is profitable. We already saw in the Proverbs 17 that it's good medicine. It, it just, it, it won't, laughter will make, it makes you feel better, doesn't it? Some of the best laughter that you'll ever experience is at a funeral. I mean, it really is. Sometimes when something funny is said about the, the deceased person, it just, it, you can just see it wash over the people who are there grieving and dealing with their loss. Yeah, it, it's... Laughter can be appropriate. Laughter, by the way, also can be an effective communication tool. It can be used to break the ice. It can be used to drive home a point. And so that question needs to be asked, whether it's in a preaching setting or whether it's in a small group setting. Is it appropriate? And then last, and this maybe perhaps is the most important, that I need to ask myself, is it a distraction? If I'm in a group and I'm about to tell this uh, joke or it makes me think of something or whatever, is it going to take me away from the point that's being made or the direction that we're going? Or is it somehow okay, it's appropriate, it's going to fit in, or it's going to maybe perhaps even help the situation? I need to be thinking about that. All of us do in Bible studies or whatever, because it is possible to become a distraction, to become, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we need to think about the things. Is it appropriate? Is it profitable? Is it a distraction? If we can deal with those things and work through those issues, then I think we'll come to the right resolution on that. Now, uh, real quickly, and and we're done. As for the the pastor and his prayer, listen, I I think God's got as good a sense of humor as anybody. Uh, I I don't think our prayer has to be all holier than thou and, you know... uh, Speaking and spoken in the Elizabethan English, and I don't think necessarily has to uh, to be like that. And so, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with him thinking that he's got a smoking hot wife. I, I, all of us who are married, all of us husbands, you, we should all think that our wives are smoking hot. That's how we should. That's that's the relationship that we should have. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. The, the problem that I have, quite honestly, with his prayer is that prayer is to be first and foremost directed and focused to God. Not that, not that it sh- it, when it's a, a public prayer, not that other people shouldn't be able to identify with it, shouldn't be able to, to amen it, which just means, yeah, that's right, truly, truly. Um, th- they should be able to identify and all that kind of stuff and speak words like that. That's fine. But first and foremost, it's focused on 
God, and it's spoken to him. And I'm not sure whether that prayer was spoken to God or whether it was spoken to the people, the track in Nashville. I, I don't want to be that man's judge because I got plenty of stuff that I mess up about. So we'll just leave that between him and God. But is it appropriate? That's the question I need to be asked. Is it distracting? That's Q&A for today.